Hello, and welcome to this very special Worldwide Developers Conference episode of Floor 9. I'm your host, Ryan Miller, and joining me as ever is Adam Simon. Adam, I don't think anyone was surprised when Tim Cook's one more thing during Monday's WWDC keynote was the long-rumored mixed reality headset, the Apple Vision Pro. But being that this was the first time that the device was visible to the public, can I ask if you had any initial impressions from afar? The most interesting thing, and maybe the thing that should not have been surprising in retrospect, but just compared to everything else that's on the market was a little surprising, is that they're really positioning the headset not as a VR device or an AR device, but as a spatial computing platform. I think that's really important. This is the beginnings of a new computing platform using a combination of mixed reality technologies to position digital content in the physical world. And there's some blurring of the lines between all of those technologies. So it's not at all like anything else on the market. It shows the ambition of this product and the ambition for where Apple sees uh, the future of computing going, which I think is super important. I would say that you're dead on in saying that there's nothing like this on the market. I know that Tim Cook called the Vision Pro the first device that Apple has built that you look through and not at. Do you think that this is really ushering in that era of what you alluded to and Apple alluded to as spatial computing? Or do you think that this is just kind of the first marker in our journey towards that evolution? I think that is yet to be seen. Given the high price and what we have heard in rumors about the supply constraints for some of the very high-end technologies that are going into this device, I think they're going to sell every one of them that they can make in the first year, but I think that number will still be pretty low. This is not going to light the world on fire overnight. However, I do think that because of Apple's position in culture and position in the technology industry, it is very likely that they are going to shape the narrative around devices that you wear in front of your eyes, for sure, and possibly for devices that start to replace all of the other screens in our lives over time. And I think that it will take a while for this to become a mass market device. But Apple being Apple, I do think that there will be a, a path to get there to get over some of those supply constraints to bring the price down over time. More so than bringing the price down, I think it'll be about adding utility so that it makes sense to invest this much money in a device that starts to replace things like your Mac and your iPad and your television over time. You brought it up in the price. And I think that is going to be the question on the tip of consumers, brands, tongues. It's like, what is the justification for a $3,500 price point? And then as a secondary follow-up to that query, who's buying this in the initial offing? The real utility and the thing that they focused on in the keynote demos was really that this thing on day one can replace the monitor on your desk and your television, and potentially your iPad as well, if you're a heavy iPad Pro user. And that is not nothing. You know, those things are pricey devices. The one thing is that it loses some of the ability to have a co-viewing experience with other people in your living room. So you will still want a television if you live with other people or even just have guests over to watch things occasionally. I do think that for solo viewing and for work at a desk, if you look at the cost of a high-end television and the cost of a monitor that Apple produces and add those together, they're around that same price. Those are the jobs that it's doing right now. And it is definitely a more affluent consumer, but that's also Apple's target market all the time. Apple consumers as a whole are more affluent. And so I do think that they will capture that high end of the market. I think that there's a little bit of a question as to, will this be able to completely replace a monitor on day one? I don't know. No one has used it outside of Apple for more than 30 minutes. So we don't know how comfortable it is to use for hours at a time. It will start taking some of those jobs away. And of course, over time, it will get smaller and lighter and the jobs to be done will just expand. So I think 
from the early impressions we've heard of people who have actually tried it, it is mind-blowingly incredible in terms of the, mm. the display. And that is really what they needed to communicate at this stage. This is breakthrough in your technologies. They demonstrated some use cases, and I think that will be enough to sell all of them that they can make in the first year. We're going to dive into some of those use cases, but you touched on something that I was actually a little bit surprised at, and that was the size of the device. I think that I was potentially imagining something that was a, more akin to traditional glasses in terms of form factor. Did you think that this was a little bigger than what most people anticipated? This is what I was expecting based on the most recent rumors, that it was going to be a totally enclosed device and not glasses. We know that Apple, as well as every other technology company, is working on AR glasses. And I think that those will come eventually. But I think that those are at least five years away. The technology does not exist yet to make glasses that are anywhere close to looking like normal glasses and also have a decent field of view for AR. And that also can be used in sunlight. <laughs> and also have a battery life and also all these other things. Exactly. I think Snap Spectacles, the latest edition, was sort of the closest. Those were never on sale to the public. They had a battery life of 30 minutes, and they had a very narrow field of view. What Apple did is they sidestepped a lot of the AR problems by building a device that would be considered virtual reality because it's totally enclosed, but has such high-quality pass-through video from the outside world that it appears to be augmented reality. And I think that this was a clever way to get to an AR-like device on day one, and also to have the flexibility of sometimes, you know, one of the use cases they showed was you're on a plane and you want to watch a movie, you don't want to see the rest of the plane. <laughs> you, you maybe only want to see the flight attendants when they're talking to you or your, your seatmates when they're talking to you. But other than that, you want to be totally enclosed and you want to be able to focus on the movie you're watching. So I think that this device gives them that flexibility. And then over time, they'll get closer to a lightweight AR device we can use throughout the day, like a pair of AirPods, even if we're out and about in the world. But in the meantime, they're building that ecosystem and an important part of that will be the software and the apps that are built for this platform, which there's certainly a lot of excitement from developers to get started building for this device. And I think from a consumer perspective, some of the use cases that they outline make a lot of sense, you know, using it for Apple Arcade, using it to stream a three-dimensional movie. But do you think there is a need for a killer app to onboard a critical mass of users and really accelerate adoption of this technology? I don't think that it's going to be one killer app, just like there wasn't one killer app for the iPhone. I think if there was one killer app for the iPhone, it was probably Safari, right? It was having a real web browser in your pocket at all times. And I do think that we will see a lot of web use in the Vision Pro as well, just because we use the web a lot as, mm -hmm. a, as a society. Some of the early use cases that we've seen using the new spatial video format that they've developed with sports seems like a very promising use case. Obviously, Apple's been pushing into sports for a while. They have a total control of the distribution for soccer in the US, and we expect that probably by next season, they will start shooting in this new format so that you will be able to watch soccer games as if you're right next to the pitch. And all of the reviewers who saw the sports demos said that it was absolutely incredible, and they would pay $3,500 just for that experience. There's one use case and one consumer for you. And obviously sports getting good tickets for a game costs a lot of money in the first place. So there's definitely a market there. I also think that the use case of using it instead of a monitor to connect to your Mac or to run apps natively on the device, there was a filmmaker who was given a preview of Final Cut Pro running on the device. It was a little unclear from his comments if it was running natively on the headset or if it was running on a Mac and projecting into the headset. Whichever way it was actually working, he describes the process of editing video with his hands, with gestures in the headset as completely magical and something right out of Minority Report. And mm. he, again, said... 
he would buy a headset just to use it for his video editing. Those are very different use cases. Obviously, one is work and one is entertainment. But again, I think that there's enough people who enjoy sports and who work in video and in other professional creative applications that will probably show up on the headset that they will easily sell all of them in the first year mm. that they can make. And you mentioned two features that I think I was a little hesitant about when I saw them demoed on stage, and that was the gestured controls and the eye tracking. And I know that a lot of reviewers have come to the defense of those two technologies specifically. I know Marcus Brownlee referred to it as like magic, the eye tracking technology. So I think that these new ways of engaging with computational hardware is really going to transform the interact that we engage with web-based experiences. We've seen things like this done with other devices in the past. They've not seemingly been as seamless as Apple has made them. The PlayStation VR 2, for example, has foveated rendering and eye tracking, and it's pretty good, but I don't think it's as accurate as Apple's from everything we can tell based on people who have, have experienced it. It's incredibly precise. You can look at very small buttons. The interfaces for the apps are not as finger-friendly looking like they are on an iPad, for example, where you have to have touch targets that are relatively large because you're poking at them with your fingers. These buttons and, and interactive uh, elements in the headset are much smaller. It's much closer to a Mac-like interface in terms of how dense the interface can be with controls. The fact that nobody really said that they had problems interacting with it, that was a breakthrough development outside of just the hardware is being able to detect your gaze that accurately. Yeah, and I think it's something like six cameras dedicated to your hands and then like another five inside of the device to track your eyes constantly. So there's definitely a sophisticated amount of technology that's available to ensure that that is a seamless process. But when you were talking about the use cases, we talked about some of the more consumer standpoints. And then we also talked about this being a professional level device. And they demoed that during WWDC and showed some of the use cases in a professional environment. Do you think that we're going to start seeing this in our offices more readily or or is it more for those high-end production professionals like the video editing use case that you alluded to? I think that there is a real use case even for folks who do more traditional kinds of knowledge work. I think that the idea of just having an infinite canvas for your windows, basically infinite, you, you can make a window look like it is a 120-inch television in front of you, or you can have dozens of windows sort of scattered around the room. There is a real use case for that kind of work. A significant number of people have multiple monitors on their desks, right? This basically gives you infinite monitors. There is a class of knowledge worker, even if you're working in PowerPoint and Excel who will want something like this and will it will help make them more productive. And your coworker can't just like sneak up behind you or sneak up from in front of you and surprise you, right? There's good ocular pass through to be able to realize the environment around you. That's a good point. So by default, when you're working in 2D applications, they're just floating windows that show up throughout your room. Your coworkers would not be able to see what you're working on, which could be a benefit for some people all by itself. Um, but <laughs> you can see them and they can see your eyes through this eyesight feature that puts a live video feed. Uh, when, when you can see into the room, the device puts a live video feed of your eyes on the front of the device, which sounded insane <laughs> as a rumor when we were talking about it a few weeks ago. It makes sense. It looks like it works. Nobody was able to actually demo that yet. So I suspect the feature is still very much in development. The other thing that will happen is if you are in a totally immersive moment, like you're watching a movie or something on a plane, and somebody starts speaking to you or their face moves close enough to the device, they actually break through the immersion so that you can mm. actually see that there's somebody watching you and there's somebody <laughs> close to you and that there's somebody talking to you. And apparently that works pretty seamlessly from the demos that some reporters were given after the event. 
That's super interesting. And I think that's all made possible by the combination of that M2 chip with that newly designed R1 chip, correct? An interesting development is that it has a totally separate real-time level of the operating system that is handling the video pass-through. And that's handled by this new R1 chip. I find this incredibly interesting because the other common use case, we've never seen a real-time OS running on a headset like this as far as I know, but the other common use case for real-time OSs in consumer products is in cars. And of course, there is a long-running rumor that Apple is working on their own car. So I do suspect that this is a piece of technology that came out of the group that's working on a car. And also that R1 chip might be the first thing that will ship to consumer that might one day ship in some kind of vehicle from Apple eventually down the road. I think that's still a few years away. Apple loves to build building blocks for future products in public and incorporate them in shipping products, which is a great way to refine them and make sure that they actually work. And obviously there's a lot lower stakes, even though the real-time operating system is designed to never crash, it's a lot lower stakes if you suddenly can't see out of your headset than if your car suddenly stops becoming responsive. So that's all part and parcel with how they develop technology. Yeah, I would say just slightly lower stakes and TBD on that Apple car. I think we're still a few years away, but I want to pivot back to on stage and some things that are grounded in reality. Timmy Cook brought out his good friend Bob Iger to talk about some of the Disney Plus implications for Apple Vision Pro. And I was actually enamored with a few of the use cases that he demoed. In Disney Plus, you could bring up some additional information for the content you're watching, like the specs of a lightsaber when you're tuning into The Mandalorian, or potentially when you're going on ESPN Plus. Plus, you can queue up a bunch of different games and see real life highlights rendered in 3D in front of you. Those are just a few of the ones that are demoed. But can you see other Disney properties coming to life through the Apple Vision Pro or other content production companies leaning in the same way? The Disney part of the session, other than showing a version of Disney Plus that was running on the headset, which they promised for day one, the rest of it felt very concept video to me. Mm. I don't think that those were real experiences that were actually built yet. I think that there's some interesting ideas in there. They showed a instant replay of an NBA game from ESPN that would not only do an instant replay, but show you the whole court in three dimensions and let you sort of choose your angle, which that's another compelling sports use case, I think, um, and obviously requires some special cameras to be capturing it. But I think if they can pull something like that off, that also just increases the likelihood that anybody who's a sports fan will want a headset. I think it's important to note, though, that this is a real development platform. Apple does not really launch products without a, a fully thought out story for developers. There have been a ton of sessions at the developer conference this week, sort of explaining in more detail how the technology behind Vision Pro works. A lot of it are things are, are building on things that have already been put in place for iOS. So they're things that developers are, are familiar with. They're partnering with Unity, which is one of the major 3D game engines um, that in Unity will have support for Vision Pro very shortly. Not all of the tools are available yet. They're coming in July, not too far out, uh, maybe another month or so. I think it's important to note that this is a real development platform with tools that developers are used to using. And that's a little bit different from how development for other headsets works. And again, it is a new computing device. It is a general purpose computer. It is not specifically designed for games. Although, of course, there will be tons of games ported to the device and, and designed for the device. I think that that changes sort of how you think about developing for it and what is possible. And I think that given that it's not coming out for at least another six months, they said early 2024, I think we're going to see a lot of interesting demos and concepts. Once developers get their hands on the tools, we're going to see some interesting work. Um, and I'm sure Apple is counting on that to sort of build excitement and help think through some of the other use cases for the device. 
So I'm a brand. I'm I'm a little worried about this new era of spatial computing. Do I have to like hire a developer to build me a mixed reality application, or do I have to start thinking about 3D advertising formats? Like, what is my first step for this new era? <laughs> There's a few things to be thinking about. First of all, there is a version of Safari running in the headset. It does support both 2D content as well as 3D content. A lot of the technologies around like web VR, I believe is supported and, and some of the, the 3D objects. So yeah, there might be some opportunities to simply add 3D versions of advertisements that are going onto some partner platforms. Obviously it's so early, no publisher has really gotten on board with that yet, but I imagine that there will be some again before the launch of the device. That's certainly the low hanging fruit. I think the other thing to think about is if you are a brand where your mobile app is an important touch point for your consumers, it is time to start thinking about whether it makes sense to do things in a more spatial way. And that could be about um, if you're, uh, say, a furniture retailer, building 3D models of all of your furniture and making sure you have those assets ready so that consumers can actually place them into their environment. Obviously, that's something that we've been doing with our mobile devices for a while. It's going to be 10 times more compelling in the headset, right? Mm. I think that for other brands, there is an opportunity, as with any new technology and any new platform that we expect to generate a lot of consumer interest, that even if it's not inherently core to your value proposition to consumers or your products and services, there's an opportunity to jump on the bandwagon and figure out some kind of cool experience and to be there on day one, because we do have six months, right? So um, there, there's plenty of time to get in early and ride that wave of Apple's marketing and of consumer interest and media interest to get some easy earned media by being there on day one with a compelling experience. I do think that it has to be thoughtful though, right? We're not mm. just, uh, there've been a lot of jokes about, I remember when the iPhone first came out and like fart apps and, and apps that simulated pouring beer were like all of the rage. Maybe you could figure out something kind of gimmicky like that, that gets you uh, a bunch of attention for a day or two. But I think that the key there would really be finding some long-term lasting, meaningful interaction for consumers. You could certainly imagine the applications for hospitality, for example, and being able to do 3D tours of hotel rooms or cruise ship cabins when what have you. And on day one, I don't know if there'll be a ton of consumers to ultimately talk to in this environment. So I think that keyword you just said about building an experience, I think that you can potentially have one of these devices and use it to attract a crowd to one of your flagship locations. Something that I've been thinking about during the launch of Vision Pro is just how crazy Apple stores are going to be again. There's going to be droves <laughs> of teenagers lined up on Friday night waiting to get their hands on with this technology. So malls are going to be packed out everywhere around you. And I could see other brands using this as a drawing or an attraction to get people to come and interact with their brands. Yeah, 100%. There's just going to be a lot of interest, especially with the high price point where we know that some consumers are going to be priced out of even considering buying one, but they will probably want to check it out at some point. Certainly, if, you're, if your market aligns with Apple's more affluent consumers, I think there will be some interest in using the device. If you can get your hands on one early, that might be enough, actually. Longer term, I think that the interesting thing, and I alluded to this in the beginning, is that this device is really set up and this platform is really set up to start to replace all of the other screens in our lives. Right now, that's not the iPhone. There's in no way, shape or form is this going to be a device that you're going to take around town with you and have uh, in, in your pocket. Or You your could though. You could. It's way too big though. And the battery life is not long enough. Um, this is more of a device that you're going to use in your home or office or mm -hmm. hotel room. 
it is positioned to start replacing your desktop and laptop computing experience, your television experience, maybe your iPad experience. And I think that for brands, an important thing to think about is if this does see sort of gain traction with consumers and really does become Apple's you know sort of future computing platform, it is a very different experience than the Mac, right? It is a mediated experience like the iPhone and iPad. All of the content either has to go through Safari or through the App Store. And that means that we're going to be restricted by what Apple allows on those platforms. And we know Apple's strong stance with privacy, as well as contentious relationship with advertising, means that we should expect that if this product is successful at chipping away at those use cases, it means that we could have those sort of restrictions on viewing of video content, of streaming content through the headset, for example, if people really do stop buying TVs and start using headsets for that purpose. There are pluses and minuses to those things. The example and the thing to sort of think about what those implications might be is that even in Safari and even in owned third-party apps, if you as a brand develop an app, you can't actually see what the user is looking at. There's no hover state. There's no focus state for the eyes. It has all the technology to do that, but because of Apple's privacy stance, nothing other than the operating system itself can see what the user is actually looking at. You only get taps or clicks, basically. So I think that that shows right out of the gate the kind of restrictions that they're going to place on the platform and the implications, again, of what that might mean over time if it really does start replacing all the other screens in our lives. A new walled garden to worry about. (laughs) Yes, but all the more reason to think through and figure out a strategy for how you can engage with consumers on the device early. Because uh, as with anything, it will take a few years for this to become a mainstream platform. But the earlier you can establish a beachhead, the cozier you can get with consumers and early adopters, I think the better positions you're going to be for when it does become more mainstream. So before we move on to all of those other screens that Apple talked about that Vision Pro will one day replace, I'm curious, Adam, have they done enough to convince you to be a day one purchaser? Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I will uh, be dropping a lot of money for this on as soon as I can. I, I think that this is an important new computing platform, and I do think that I need to use it for more than a half an hour or so at a time to really understand what the use cases are and how it's going to impact consumers and, and the rest of the industry. It potentially is a profound shift. Again, we're assuming that it's going to do well and that consumers at some point are going to take to this device. There are a lot of naysayers, I think, who are are skeptical of the price. But again, I think they're going to sell as many as they can make in the first year. I think that there are people who think that consumers are never going to wear headset devices, that we have to get to lightweight glasses before they're going to be adopted en masse. I think that that is probably not true. I think that lots of people said that No one would ever use AirPods because they looked weird. If the value proposition is good enough, it doesn't matter if it looks weird. From all of the early previews that we've we've seen and all of the press who have used it, it seems like the value proposition is enough. I would take pushback with a little bit of a grain of salt for now, at least until the devices are in the hands of more people and we can get uh, a better better read as to the longer-term value proposition. And like I keep saying, they're going to sell as many of these as they can make for the foreseeable future. Yeah, I'm excited to read more reviews and reports as you alluded to, there's only been 30-minute demos so far. So once you get that uh, box sometime early 2024, I'll be over your house uh, making sure I launch into this mixed reality space. 
Yeah, I think there's a big question as to how quickly those early units are going to go. It's going to be a scramble and a mad dash to get those uh, first shipments into the hands of people. Also, we should note, it's only going to be released in the US in early 2024. They said additional countries later in 2024. The other thing that we will know as we get closer to launch, just by rumors from the supply chain, is how many they'll actually be able to ship next year. All the reports seem to indicate it's uh, around a million units, which is not that many when you compare it to every other platform that Apple makes. We'll we'll see. Uh, I'm sure that that, uh, Tim Cook has people working around the clock to figure out how to make these faster for Mm -hmm. for consumers. (laughs) You can guarantee that. So we spent, I think, enough time talking about Vision OS or XROS as some of the developers have leaked throughout conferences or uh, sessions throughout the week. But there was a ton of other operating system updates from Apple or announcements. We heard about iOS 17 for iPhone, Sonoma for Mac, iPad OS, and you guessed it, OS 10 for Apple Watches. So of all of these litany of updates and announcements to operating systems, was there anything that stood out to you from across the ecosystem? Well, I'm excited about the updates to Apple Watch. I've been an Apple Watch wearer from the beginning, and this is the first big rethink of how the operating system should work. You might remember this happened to iOS back in iOS 7 um, when they they went from very realistic skeuomorphic design to very flat design and sort of rethought where the control center lives and things like that. This is that moment for the watch, and it's obviously taken to version 10 rather than version 7, so I think it's a little overdue. And I think it it looks promising. I think it, it, it looks like a good adaption to the larger screens of the watch and a a better way to give you access to more third-party applications on the device, which has always been the challenge with the watch. On that tiny little screen, how do you easily and quickly let people jump into other apps? Now it will be using uh, this new widget system and sort of a little scrollable interface of of tiny little widgets on your your watch. And the widgets, I think, are actually one of the biggest takeaways from all of the operating systems because the same widgets are now going to be running on the watch, on the Mac, on the iPad, on the iPhone. It's now a unified system. And I think this is very smart because if you have an iPhone app and consumers, and there's a a logical reason to have a widget, suddenly it's very easy to bring that same widget to the Mac and to the watch. These platforms that often get sort of left behind when developers don't have the resources, Apple's really doing their best to make it as easy as possible to support applications across all of their platforms. And that cross-device connectivity and functionality is, you know, kind of a hallmark of the Apple ecosystem. And what we're seeing is on iPad, they're bringing those real-time updates to some of those micro features that you can access, like little snippets of the application on your home screen or your lock screen. And similarly, you can embed those experiences on your desktop in Sonoma as well. So I think that that widgets that you called out specifically from the watch is making its way throughout the entirety of the Apple ecosystem. And it's something that I'm probably a little bit more keen to start using, knowing that it's following me around across each of my digital touch points. Yeah, the other interesting sort of related to Widget's uh, announcement was this new mode for the iPhone that when it is charging on a MagSafe dock in landscape mode, it basically becomes just a widget display, which is smart because, uh, you know, I think that that obviously makes sense. You, if, you're, if it's on your nightstand, it can be a clock, right? Like people already use their phones that way. But I think it also indicates that we're, we're inching towards some kind of new smart display from Apple, whether that's going to be an, an iPad that connects to a dock and becomes a giant widget 
display or a dedicated device that's some kind of home pod with a display it seems clear to me that that's coming and probably coming in the fall i would i would assume that's fun and that's exciting because uh, i think those displays from google and amazon are very useful in places like the kitchen um, but they're they're different ecosystems and if you're in apple's ecosystem you probably want the podcast player that you use and the cooking app that you use on your other devices you want all of those synced together and i think slowly we're getting there <laughs> And HomeKit and Matter, all of those things should make that process a little bit more seamless of setting it up in your home, right? One of the use cases they demoed is using new widgets for HomeKit and for the Home app. And I think that that is a primary use case for a lot of these devices. And because of the Matter standard, it finally means that we're we're getting to a place with the smart home that it makes sense for Apple. They've not been as aggressive as Amazon and Google about getting a lot of third parties on board with their home platform. But because of Matter, they now are starting to have access to all of those other devices. And I think because of that, I think the home is becoming a more important important place for Apple strategically. Yeah. I mean, the home and the car are really the only two places left for them to venture into. And we talked about the car. So this is probably a little bit more in the near term. Yep. Yep, for sure. And I think the other thing that we didn't hear about, obviously, there was a lot to talk about at WWDC this year that I think we'll hear about more in the fall is the next generation of CarPlay, which is something they teased last year. I expect that we're going to see some announcements for some uh, automotive partners, probably at the iPhone event in the fall, because they did say that they would be shipping for model year 2024 with some automakers. So that is something, obviously, that we'll be paying close attention to. I think they might have talked about it this week if the headset had not happened. And I think that will also start to tell us more about Apple's ambitions in the automotive space um, once we see more details about what that next-gen CarPlay actually looks like. One small CarPlay update they did talk about is the ability to not have to pass the aux wire around and just join a playlist in progress through <laughs> Apple Music, which is a nice quality of life improvement, I will 100%. say. 100%. I was just talking about this uh, over Memorial Day weekend of like, uh -huh. it's so annoying. I think most people, the driver is the one whose phone is connected to the entertainment unit for maps and directions, which totally makes sense. But other people want to control the music sometimes. And yeah, you can tap around inside of CarPlay, but that is kind of an awkward interface and takes a while. And, uh, you know, this it's basically lets you airplay from your own phone to the phone that is connected to the infotainment unit. So just going back to the watch really quick, knowing that you're a big watch user, I liked the golf implication that it could teach you about your swing. Everyone's swing is awful if you're a golfer. So I think a lot of people will be looking to that for another great sports use case. I also liked the mood ring application that's in the mental health logging. I thought that was kind of funny. But Adam, any other features stood out to you as a uh, daily user? I was really interested in the cycling updates. The watch can now connect to sensors that you would place like on your the wheels of your bicycle that would give you real-time updates on your velocity and your, your speed and your power. And I think it connects those devices to the watch and then the watch connects to your phone. When you are cycling, you can also use your phone as a cycling computer, basically. So if you mount the phone on your handlebars, not only can it show you directions, obviously, but which is what a lot of people do for directions when they're, they're cycling, but it also will show you all of that information on the larger display so you don't have to awkwardly look at your wrist if you want that information which is kind of dangerous when you're cycling actually you want to keep looking forward and both hands on the handlebars it included things like power zones um, which is a popular training mechanism so you can sort of see what zone your heart rate is in so just things that they don't have to do but that just make the ecosystem a lot better make it a lot more seamless you need a lot more uses for the devices that you already have um, without needing to buy additional hardware. This update is really just bringing more capabilities so that you don't need specialized devices, um, which is always sort of Apple's game, is about turning specialized devices into general purpose computers. 
you talked about capabilities. There is a ton of smaller capabilities and features that were unveiled during WWDC. My personal favorite was the new journal application that they're introducing that's going to serve you prompts based on your photos, your workouts, and the music that you were listening to, to you know practice gratitude and record some of your daily events based on events that happen in that day. I was curious, Adam, beyond the journal, were there any features, functions that stood out to you that maybe were a little bit smaller, but piqued your interest? I thought strategically it was very interesting, this new contact posters. We've had for a while this idea that in, in iMessage, you can pick your photo and it pushes it to your contacts so that you can sort of control how you show up. They're extending that to the phone and to FaceTime. So it's your entire contact card now is something that you can design with your own photo. When you call somebody, it shows up with the photo that you've chosen, not the one that they've chosen. This is the slow creeping additions of social network-like features into the iPhone. There is never, I think, going to be a social networking app for the phone, but they're adding all of these features to things like messages and the phone and FaceTime in ways that are the way that people use social media. And I think that that is interesting. And I think it's having more control over your persona on these platforms is an interesting development strategically. Do you think brands are going to be able to take advantage of that airdrop bump mechanic where you touch a phone to a like near field communication device in order to onboard information to your own? That's an interesting question. You can, yeah, one of the other updates was that you can, uh, it's called Name Drop, which is a very cute name, uh, cute branding. You can basically trade your contact information with other users by just bringing your phones close to each other. This is something that to your point, <laughs> there was an entire startup called Bump that did this uh, in the early <laughs> days of the iPhone. Now it's obviously getting built into the system where it belongs. I think that brands could transmit information that way. I don't know that it's necessarily more seamless than AirDrop has been previously. I think it's more discoverable and that is the idea idea is that I think th these are really just new interfaces for airdrop and share play. And Apple, I think, is just trying to make sure that users know that there are quick and easy ways that they can send information between each other. So yeah, there might be a possibility for brands to do something similar. But in this case, it's mostly transferring files and contact cards. So I'm not sure off the top of my head what a brand could use that for. But I'm sure somebody will come up with some kind of creative use case at some point. So Adam, you're just talking about people getting creative. And I thought that something that was noticeably absent from WWDC was the mention of synthetic media and artificial intelligence. Do you think that was intentional or what, what do you think Apple's thinking behind that was? They're definitely not jumping on the generative AI bandwagon like everybody else, at least publicly. My guess is that the simple reason is that they had nothing to announce. This is a trend that really blew up in the public consciousness over the past six months. And I don't think Apple is rushing to jump on that bandwagon. We know they're hiring developers in that space based on their job postings. There was actually a job posting that leaked last week, basically saying looking for generative AI experts who work in 3D to join the headset team. So we know that those things are, are in the works and coming. They did announce a few features related to autocorrect and dictation that they said were powered by transformer models, which is transformer is the T in chat GPT. I think that was on purpose. They wanted to make sure that people knew that they were paying attention and in using those things in places that they made sense for Apple right now. You know, the other thing that I wasn't really expecting this year, but that we know has been in the works is a full ground up redesign and rework of Siri, which I suspect that that is where they will talk about this 
first, probably. Clearly, that's not ready for right now. Maybe it's something we'll see later in the fall at the iPhone event, but I kind of suspect that's a next year product. Apple does not tend to jump on trends. They're not a first mover in, in any technology. They tend to come in a little bit later with something that is more thoughtful for how it integrates with the rest of their platforms. So I'm not expecting really anything from them this year. I think probably next year we'll see something from them that is a little more robust than these early transformer models for, for language. Beyond that autocorrect example, I think as Craig put it, when they talk about it, it'll be a big ducking deal. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, we'll see if this version of autocorrect is is better, honestly. <laughs> uh, unclear, unclear. They've used AI badly uh, to uh, Im impact autocorrect in the past. So we'll see how this one works out once we get our hands on these betas. Well, that'll do it for our WWDC edition of Floor 9. Adam, thank you for your expertise and being here as always. Yeah, it was an exciting conversation. It's a fun time in uh, technology, and I'm sure we'll be talking about all of this more when the new OSs come out in the fall and later this year or early next year when we can get our hands on a Vision Pro. And hopefully we'll have one at the lab so that all of our listeners can come and demo so they can uh, get ushered into the era of spatial computing with the rest of us. For everyone here at the IPG Media Lab, thank you for listening. As always, you can find us on Twitter at IPG Lab and on our Medium page at IPG Media Lab. Thanks as always. Bye-bye.